Well, now, thank you very much, Chris, for your welcome, and it's good. It really is a, a, a pleasure to be here, uh, sharing God's word with you, and uh, I hope you have our fellowship together this evening. Uh, it's also good that it's uh, so informal, and with a little bit of food. Uh, very New Testament, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, now, uh, what I'd like to to um, we're not going to get into all of the events of Acts 4. It, it's, I mean, it is bursting with activity and action and blessing. The opening chapters of Acts are really dynamic. And it, But we're going to actually focus on a topic. But that topic emerges, or, or, or shall we say, it has, a, it has a, a flag that really emphasizes the theme. And I would like us to, if we, have, if we had a little title, it would be, if there's good news, there is only one Jesus but we only need one. Now this is a really important subject in the New Testament. Well, in the Bible, really. Uh, and we're really thinking about the exclusive position of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a huge backdrop to this in the Old Testament. For example, I'll give you two examples. If you, if you read that 1 Kings and 2 Kings, which is after Solomon and the division of the kingdom, there is a there is a, an awful period for Israel, hundreds of years of decline, and it reaches a climax when the people of Israel are regularly worshiping other gods, the gods, small g, of the nations, and because of that, they are cast out of the promised land, and and. Uh, Particularly as you get to the climax towards the end of two kings, you really sense this. And of course God is the is the creator of the world. There is only one God. And this is what Genesis, the opening chapters, are so emphatic about. There is one God, maker of heaven and earth. And uh, and then of course the whole history of Israel sort of works that out and it's built on that. And then prophetically and poetically, um, in Isaiah, for example, 43 through to 46 in particular, Isaiah thunders this truth. There is one God. There is no saviour beside me. So when we come to this issue, we've now moved into the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ is on the scene of history. And this great central truth is again asserted. Now let me very quickly show you um, how this is done in the letters and we'll, uh, an Acts and the letters and we'll come back to the Gospels in, in, in a while. Uh, and sometimes people try and drive a wedge between the letters and the Gospels. And that is completely wrong. There is perfect harmony between them. I'll give you a, a sort of a, a small demonstration of that in a moment. But here we are, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. So, salvation is found in no one else. Now, this is Peter preaching in resurrection power, Holy Spirit power. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So, there is no other name under heaven. This is universal. This is timeless. Now, and I'm going to quote a number of verses. If you, if, you, if you want to write them down, you can try and do that. And, and if, you, if you don't keep up with that, don't worry. You can always ask me or you can do a little bit of a search later. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul has a, a particular 
purpose for the letter to the Galatians, uh, but he wants to emphasize that they must not in any way depart from Christ and go back to the, to the Old Testament law and so forth. And he writes this, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And this is what he's tackling in the letter to the Galatians. There is no other gospel. No other name. No other gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 6. Paul's writing to Timothy, a leader of leaders. And, and, and someone who is uh, sort of leading the church forward uh, as a leader himself. And during his uh, writing to Timothy, Paul writes chapter 2 verse 6. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. You start to feel the force of this. No other name. No other gospel. One mediator. And then you come to, we'll come to Hebrews chapter 1 and the opening three verses. And, and I, I cite this for a particular reason, which will become clear. But this is what he, the, the writer there, again, there's a similar thing where people are in danger of going back to the shadows of Judaism when they had the reality of the gospel. Uh, and again, the writer is most anxious that they do not do that. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. There are actually seven wonderful things said about Jesus in this passage. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now why have I quoted that? Simply this. There is no better revelation. Because after all the unfolding of the revelation through the Bible, it climaxes and is consummated in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate revelation. He steps onto the stage of human history and he came to his own and his own received him not. As John tells us. So, there is no better revelation. No other name, no other gospel, one mediator, no better revelation. And then we go to the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. And that, that kind of dramatic scene where we, we, we see uh, the throne room of heaven. Those tremendous chapters of Revelation 4 and 5. I used to have a practice that it's lapsed in recent years. And I ought to take it up again. Well, recent, yeah, last couple of years. I used to read the book of Revelation every Sunday. Not the whole thing, but you know, maybe five or six chapters and then carry on the next week. And I did that every Sunday for years. Uh, and it's a, it's a real blessing to do that. But listen to this, chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Let's take this broadly as the scroll of human history and destiny. Let's, let's just broadly look at it as that. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Within that scroll, if we say history and destiny, but we must include salvation, right? No one was found worthy. Now, do you, do you, do you sense this? Uh, it's a little bit like when you listen to a symphony, and there's often a recurring motif through the symphony as, 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 the, as the composer wants to keep emphasizing. And sometimes it emerges quietly, and sometimes it thunders um, through the through the the piece. And it's a, it's a bit like this. This is something which is constantly being asserted: the exclusive authority and unique position of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are Christians. And this is what we stand on. And there is pressure. There's always pressure to compromise on that. But we can't afford to. Because the scripture is clear. But now, let me take this a step further. Because these are, you know, you've got Peter, you've got Paul, you've got to the, the writer of Hebrews, said he very carefully skating over that. Uh, so, you know, you've got uh, whoever wrote that, you've got Paul writing to Timothy, you've got Luke writing Acts, but it's Peter that's speaking, etc., etc. Where did these men learn this? Because sometimes people... It's, it's happened, it's been going on for a long, long time. People kind of imagine that somehow early Christians somehow modified the original. And there's a lot of big names that have, that have gone for that. Well, where did these men learn this? Well, I could say the Holy Spirit taught them. That would be true. But let me be more particular. From hearing and seeing and knowing Jesus himself. Uh, they spent, I know Paul wasn't part of the twelve, but of course very early on the Lord Jesus laid hold of him. Um, and, and that's something that could fit very easily within this, this, this study, but I will, we'll pass over that for now. Matthew twelve forty two. listen to this. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. John chapter 7, a lot of these quotes will come from John, but you know, the, 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 the emphasis is still there in, in, in Matthew and Luke and, and, and so on. But John 7, 37, this is, this is a these statements are staggering. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Luke 24. This is where he's walking along. Jesus is walking alongside the, the two disciples who are utterly disconsolate. Because all their hopes have been shattered in the crucifixion. They haven't yet grasped the resurrection. And the Lord Jesus comes alongside them. And here's it. And this is, I find this a wonderful thing. Did not the Messiah, verse 26 of Luke 24, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Just on the other side for a moment. Isn't it remarkable that somebody 
who has walked out of the tomb and is there in resurrection life and power should refer to the book. It's really significant as to how he values the book, which we call our Bible. And he's speaking, of course, from the Old Testament scriptures. John 6.35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The language is simple. The concept, the offer, is staggering. John 8.12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, thirst is quenched, hunger is satisfied, direction is given. <laughs> it's just one after the other. John 10, verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will go, come in and go out and find pasture, nourishment, protection of future. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. John 8, 58, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. No wonder Jesus then, when he gets to the end of Matthew's Gospel and he's ready to return to his Father in heaven, says this, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now that's, that's a really remarkable set of circumstances. Now, let me just quickly uh, give you a little quote here, which is really interesting. I, I like this statement. Sadly, I didn't know where I got it from. But, uh, trust me, it was a good source. <laughs> History has revealed many self-appointed saviour figures, and humanity has devised many ways of salvation. But there is a divine necessity that should be communicated to everyone about calling on the name that God has provided. This is so because Jesus' unique place in the the divine plan, uh, people in a relativistic, multi-faith society find such an exclusive claim very difficult to accept. Alternatives have been proposed to weaken its impact, including the notion that somehow Jesus benefits sincere adherence of other religions, even though they do not acknowledge him as Saviour and Lord. But approaches are not, such approaches are not consistent with the teaching of Acts 2 to 3. That it is actually necessary to call on the name of Jesus with repentance and faith to benefit from the salvation he offers. Now, one of the big encouragements for you as a church in all of this is, why does this church exist? Well, preaching Christ. Now these, you know, these, that provides a foundation for that. That's the working of that. So in your task, your mission to uphold this, you are doing the right thing. And there are many, many um, challenges to that in all kinds of subtle ways. Now, can I just beg your pardon if you do not like football illustrations? Because <laughs> very often football illustrations are precarious because 
you know, sort of a bit of a turn-off for, for people that don't like football. But I must, because this is relevant. Uh, when I was, you know, a young teenager living in Belfast, uh, in my bedroom I had lots of photographs of great footballers. It was a big passion. It's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a thing in Northern Ireland. It just really is here. And um, it's interesting, in the last 12 to 18 months, loads of famous players have died. Um, some of these names will mean nothing to some of you, but they might click with others. Norman Hunter, Leeds United in England. Colin Bell, who, I, who mesmerised me when I was a teenager. Uh, Manchester City in England. Roger Hunt, Liverpool in England. Jimmy Greaves, uh, who was outstanding beyond measure a little bit. He was like towards the end of his career when I was getting interested in football. But all these men have died. And the interesting thing is, they're all great players. And they were all honoured in various tributes and so on. Colin Bell, for example, in Manchester City's ground, they had this gigantic flag. I mean, it must have been the size of this wall. Uh, maybe bigger. And it was draped across the, the, the stadium with all the people underneath. Um, and it was a big photograph of him and Colin, Colin Bell, the king, etc. Uh, here's what struck me about this. They were all very talented. And they all had slightly different talents. They were all great. But the interesting thing is there's the whole string of them. This, this is the point. Uh, and so... Uh, Sometimes with various people say, oh, he was the greatest this, or he was the greatest that. Now, I mean, for example, from Belfast, I could say George Best was the greatest, but then, you know, etc., etc., etc. The truth is, there's loads of them. And they all have their greatness in football terms. When we come into the realm of a saviour of sinners, there's only one. This is so important. There is only one. No other. No compromise. No variation, no rivals, no competitors. Whatever, however you want to put it. And this is emphatic. And that's why I've, I've, I, I, it's one way of studying the Bible, is to pull together various statements on a collective theme. Or, or a linked theme. You know, there's another place for diving into one passage and really getting to grips with it. So it's been kind of rapid fire. But it's like a tsunami of truth. It just washes over you, uh, and you must you must bow to it. And, 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 and as believers, we gladly do. But the important thing about that is that that's why we uphold it. That's why the church exists in part to uphold this truth. Now, we have made an exchange. If you are a Christian, and I, I'm assuming the majority here would be in that position, count themselves in that position. We have made an exchange. And this might encourage you. I want you to reflect on this. Because sometimes, you know, we get wrapped up with this or that. And it's good to go back and just revisit what the Lord has done for you. Worship Him. And be grateful. And be re-energized. Just out of sheer gratitude. And, for example, and I, and this is certainly true of me, not, not in, not in kind of any clever sense, but I'm moving from opposing or ignoring Jesus to trusting Jesus. Uh, that was my position. Uh, more ignoring than opposing, I think. Because I was familiar with the gospel from being very young. 
But the teenage years, it was swept aside. And then the Lord Jesus confronted me as a 19-year-old. And I moved from opposing and, 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 and ignoring to trusting. And that's, what, that's where you are as a believer. If you're not yet a Christian, just listen to these little exchanges and consider them for yourself. We move from ignorance to knowledge. Ignorance of exactly who Jesus is. Now we've, we've just rapidly run through this, but you know it's a, it's a lifetime's meditation to think about these things. But we move from ignorance to knowledge. We may be uh, knowledgeable about many things in life, but to really know who Jesus is, what his significance is, and that I need to really commit myself to, that is a big shift. That's a big exchange. And if we've done that, we then have moved from the insufficient to the all-sufficient. Because whatever our trust or our hope or our energies or our life focus was, we shift from that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've moved from the insufficient because everything is inadequate and insufficient, ultimately. But he is all-sufficient. Which means we've moved from the short-term to the long term. And uh, you're allowed to say this, you see, when you're over 65, you can say this with a real significance of feeling. Life is short. And we move from the short term. And my, my philosophy, influenced by the Bible, is we're not running out of time, we're running into eternity. And that's what we're doing. And we're moving from the short term to the long term. Here's another thing, we're moving from self-deception to self-confession. We're confessing Jesus is mine. My hope is built on nothing less. You see, we deceive ourselves if we think somehow the resources are, are in ourselves. And yet, you know, it's not. It just isn't. We've exchanged lies for truth. Now, not, not all lies are kind of evil sounding. You know, when, you know there, there, are, there are degrees of nastiness about lies. I mean, the vast majority of advertising is just plain lies, isn't it? When you listen to it, and what the way that products and services are advertised, you think it's absolutely wonderful. But then there's a, there's a whole series, series of deeper, significant lies about who we are and where we're headed and what comes after death. Uh, sometimes those things are played down. Other times there are tremendous lies around uh, based on ignorance. Again, as, as believers, we know that the father of lies influences these things. But we move from that to truth. Not by way of evidence. Well, we but the Lord Jesus Christ is the one we're trusting. And so then ultimately we move from death to life. Now that is magnificent. And it's unparalleled. Ignoring for trusting. Ignorance for knowledge. Insufficient for the all-sufficient. Short-term for the long-term. Self-deception for a glad self-confession that I need him. Lies for truth. Death for life. There is only one Jesus and we only one. Now, yesterday, 
Mike and I went for a walk, and uh, I was inquiring, because I'm interested, not that I could ever fly a plane, I couldn't, I really couldn't, uh, I'm bad enough as a passenger, but uh, I really couldn't fly them. And um, I was asking him about this thing of flying in the cloud. I said, what's the key thing when you're flying in the cloud? I might have a quick answer, based obviously on knowledge and experience. Uh, and from what he was taught, you keep your eyes on the instruments and you trust them. Right? So, and yet you see, everything against you is you're looking at what's around you. But you must trust the instrument. Now, let me let me use that as an illustration. I didn't ask the question because I was looking for an illustration. It just arose. <laughs> it just arose. And and, uh, and and the thing is, you know, when you look at the sort of intellectual, cultural climate around us, it's massive. And you could easily be disoriented. So you must trust your instruments. You must keep your eyes here and on the kind of the breadth of truth that we have considered, what I have asserted. I mean, and really, and I, I do believe faithfully, I have asserted what the Bible asserts. You, know, you dig into it for yourself. Uh, but I know this is a church that's seeking to uphold these things. So, we, we it, without a complete absence of arrogance, we can have absolute confidence. Confidence and arrogance are not the same thing. Because our confidence is not in ourselves, or our, our own abilities, or our own, even our own comprehension. I mean, you know this, you, you, those of you that are, that are Christians, you know, think about that time. It could have been overnight, it could have been over a process, when you move from ignorance of Jesus to a real grasp, a beginning grasp of who he is. And the way it literally refreshed your soul. I mean, that, that's how it happened to me. I became a Christian, given the Gospel of John, read it through a course of seven days, three chapters every day, and I was overwhelmed. That famous thing about C.S. Lewis, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about his moment of conversion, but when he said when he got on the bus, he wasn't a Christian, when he got off the bus, he was. Um, certainly he was a believer in God, he became from an atheist to a theist, that was at least definite. But of course he, he went on to a full commitment to Jesus. So, you know, it, we must keep our eyes on the instruments. This word is trustworthy. Now again, at one level, this doesn't matter a scribe. At another level, it might be significant. I've been reading the Bible virtually every day. Very few days will pass when I don't. For 50 years. 50 years. It's hard to imagine that I hear myself saying that. 50 years. But I'll tell you this. It's more precious, more significant now than ever. It just seems to keep on becoming more significant with every passing year. Maybe that's because I have a sense that, that you know, you're moving forward in life. And that's a blessing, and I can uh, I, I can assure you that is worth pursuing with all your heart and soul, um, whether you're young or whether you're old. Now, if you know this Lord Jesus, then you praise Him. If you, you praise Him, that's what we do today. And if you don't, well then you better go to Him as quickly as you can. And if you need help, 
The church is here to provide. Amen. Amen. Amen.